Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, John Clark here. I'm excited to introduce my guest for today. Uh, Rachel Cook is on a mission to end entrepreneurial poverty of time, energy, and money for women business owners. She's an MBA-trained business growth strategist, founder of the CEO Collective, host of the Promote Yourself to CEO podcast, and a best-selling author. Over the last 16 years, she has helped thousands of female entrepreneurs design predictably profitable businesses without the hustle and burnout that doing hashtag all the things inevitably accomplishes. And I have a feeling there's a lot more to learn about, Rachel, but we'll we'll uh, transition there. And uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being here and, uh, and joining the show. Um, what else is missing from that bio? How did you get here? Oh my gosh. So many things are missing from the bio, but first, thank you, John, for having me. It is a pleasure to talk to you and this community that you have here is a community that is so near and dear to my heart and they weave into my whole entrepreneurial origin story. I feel like a superhero whenever I have to give the origin story of like how this all started. Um, but like many women coming out of MBA programs, I went directly into corporate, directly into the super fast paced, uh, super toxic world of consulting. <laughs> where I burned out very quickly. And it wasn't just a burnout from overwork. That was a massive part about it. But to be honest, I was the only woman in an office of 50 guys. It was very much a toxic masculinity frat house type of atmosphere. It was not healthy for me at all. And by the end of you know, a few years in, I was sitting there starting to experience anxiety that I'd never had before. I started having panic attacks for the first time in my entire life. In fact, I was on the road all the time as a consultant. Many consultants basically live in their car or in the airport. Um, and I remember pulling my Prius off the side of the interstate thinking, I'm going to die today because I, I never had a panic attack before. And I had no idea what was going on. So I ended up putting in a leave of absence from consulting, I put in for disability and said, I need some time to figure out what's going on because I was in my twenties and my doctors were saying, you're young. There's nothing wrong with you. They had no reason why I was having these very physical symptoms manifesting after, you know, going after this high achiever performer life that I've had. And I decided to take three months off and I took paid medical leave, uh, short-term disability leave and I sat my butt down in front of a therapist and a life coach and a yoga teacher for three solid months. And that was the first time I'd really explored not just what I thought I was supposed to do be based on what my life had told me, like go to school, get all the grades, get the master's degree, you know, check, 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 get the career, all of those things that we're told we're supposed to do as we're going, growing up. And I was very good at achieving those things only to find out, out I was miserable. I was sacrificing not just my physical health, but my mental health. I was not seeing my family or my husband. And it was such a light bulb moment for me to take those three months and realize something has got to change because ending up, you know, with a panic attack on the side of the interstate was not the answer. That wasn't the right way for me. So I spent those three months, I was in my therapist's office two times a week. I was talking to my life coach once a week and I was on a yoga mat every single day. And during the time, I actually started asking myself questions like, well, what do you really want to do? What do you actually like? What makes you happy? Not just what makes 
your parents happy or everyone else think, you know, you're successful, but what do you actually want? And I had no clue. I realized I had checked all the boxes and I had no clue what I wanted, but I think the world, you know, works in mysterious ways. You can't always have all the answers. And what ended up happening is I became very close with my yoga teacher and because I was going to yoga every single day, it was the first time I'd really explored a mindfulness practice that got me into my body. And she and I connected in a very deep level. And she said, Rach, I know you're considering leaving your job when this medical leave is up. Um, I know you don't want to go back to that. Do you think you could help me with my yoga studio? And it was like that light bulb moment for me where I realized that in 2007, 2008, when all this was happening for me, these types of small business owners, owner operated businesses, solo businesses with only like the business owner and maybe one or two people helping them out, they didn't have access to the type of consulting I was providing to multi million dollar businesses. They didn't have somebody looking out for them, helping them come up with their strategy, helping them with their financial and marketing plan and sales strategy. So, I quit everything. I turned in my resignation and I decided to help her with her yoga studio. And within a few months, me being me with, you know, my nerdy tendencies, I was like, what do your financials look like? Give me your PL. What's your break even per class? And I started asking her these questions and she had no idea. And I realized, you know, most of the people out there who made such a big impact for me, these healers and helpers, uh, creative people, they started their work because they love the work. They love what they do. They love the transformation they can provide, but they don't always understand the business side behind the scenes. And I could come alongside them and be their partner in that and figuring out how to make the business work so they can do more of what they love to do and less of the quote unquote business stuff. So that's kind of how it all started. My uh, kind of breakdown, panic attacks, <laughs> needing to take medical leave led to me having this breakthrough, realizing I could take these skills and transfer them to these business owners that I really cared about. Mm. Yeah, there, there's two pieces that I am uh, want to look at a little more here. Is One is that uh, going through this kind of personal crisis led you to asking a lot of big questions, a lot of why. Why do this? Yeah. What do I really want? Um, what's my purpose in life? Um, and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, it takes some sort of crisis to bring us to those questions. Um, even more reason to try to ask ourselves those questions when we're not in crisis, right? As to what do I really want? And if I can uh, uh, tune out all the other voices, like you mentioned, uh, parents, teachers, coaches, whoever, you know, peers in your life, um, the, the kind of unconscious pressures to do certain things or become someone in particular is pretty immense. And so getting clear and, and conscious about what you really want. Um, and then the other piece about, you know, um, a lot of small business owners, what got them to the, to the dance is their love of their craft, right? Whether it's being a yoga teacher in our case, <clears throat> being a therapist, um, it wasn't the business components that drew them here. But being a business owner for us is the best case scenario in a lot of regards in terms of uh, uh yeah. both income and helping the kind of people you want and balance and life satisfaction and all that but it means that we have to lean into our blind spots with business and get help yeah absolutely and it's scary to do that because like most people who are in the therapy world <laughs> 
did not take a business class or get a business degree and maybe never, ever thought of themselves as business owners. And now here they are realizing that the path that they want is one that they have not many um, resources to pull from when it comes to making it a reality. Yeah. I, th I think it's interesting because also hiring a consultant is kind of like getting the business training or the business education that most of us never had. Most of us skipped over yeah. and even owners being a couple of years and not knowing what a profit and loss statement is and, and things like that of, uh, you know, or not knowing how to diagnose what problems do I even have in my business, right? Where to start. So someone like you can be really helpful to, um, to knowing comprehensively how a business functions regardless of industry and to come in, help diagnose problems, help prioritize problems too, right? In terms of, let's say we got five different things to fix at once, which is not uncommon. Then how do you choose what to fix next, right? Or maybe you have a business that might not make it if you don't fix the right thing next, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I know this other piece um, and uh, when we were originally setting up this interview was this idea of entrepreneurial poverty, which um, yeah. we've certainly talked about that a lot here on this show. And um, you can just call it therapist poverty as, as well in our <laughs> case. But what, um, what does that mean to you and how, um, yeah, how do you help people um, uh, avoid yeah. or escape entrepreneurial poverty? I love this topic so much and it, it is something that is so near and dear to my heart because I specifically focus on working with women entrepreneurs. No offense, John, <laughs> you're great, but all the clients I have as of right now are women-owned businesses. And the reason I'm so focused on women-owned businesses is all the research shows that if you want to change the world, you invest in women in the world because that is what exponentially multiplies so much goodness in the world. So that is my big why. My big why I'm focused on women-owned businesses. And for women-owned businesses, like over 80% recently, of therapists are, are women. So yeah. you're, you're, uh, you've got a captive exactly. audience here for sure. I'm in the Well, minority. and that's the thing. 80% of therapists are women-owned, are women entrepreneurs. Most healing um, and helping entrepreneurs are women. Women are by far the most attracted to those types of fields. And what we still see is as recently as the 2019 American Express Women in Business report is that 75% of women-owned businesses make less than $50,000 a year. And that's not yeah. take-home pay. That's total revenue. And anyone yeah. who's been in business for any length of time knows that if that's what you're bringing in, total revenue, and then you have to pay your taxes and your expenses and all the fees and all the mm. licensing, what you're bringing home at the end of the day you might as well go work at Starbucks if that's where you are. Because at least and then you get healthcare covered. Are. Yeah, and that's yeah. where a lot of people end up. You know, a lot of uh, new business owners or even business owners in a few years, is they end up there and they go, why am I doing all this? Right, I'm making exactly. less than I ever have. I'm working more than I ever have and I'm more stressed than I've ever been. Um, unfortunately, you know, this wage gap exists in employed places as well, in corporations yep. in a really big way in terms of, um, discrepancy between uh, uh, the salaries of of men and women. So um, yeah, yeah. There's that's a. Uh, it sounds like that's a big part of your why. It is. It's a huge part of it. And even in a recent study that FreshBooks, which is one of the biggest you know accounting and invoicing softwares that a lot of small business owners and freelancers use, they found that on average, women entrepreneurs and freelancers undercharged by twenty six percent compared to their male counterparts. 
in all of the invoices and all of the industries that they represent. So this is a very real problem. And for me, when I think about entrepreneurial poverty, the finances of it is only one part, right? This is only one part. It's the most obvious part because it's the one that um, we can quantify. But the other two components of this that I think are just as, if not more important, are the poverty of time and the poverty of energy. If you are working to the point where you are putting in 80 plus hours a week for the rest of your career, you don't have time for basically anything else. You know, there's 168 hours a week. If you're working 80 hours a week and then you're sleeping hopefully eight hours a night, you have about 32 hours a week left to do all the other things that are required for living, like feeding yourself mm -hmm. and showering and buying groceries. That's not a whole lot of time. And, and that and entrepreneurial time poverty is such mm -hmm. a huge, huge problem because it leads to the depletion of energy for so mm -hmm. many entrepreneurs where they feel worn down from their business. And in fact, I've heard so many people come to tell me that they started their business thinking they would have more freedom and more flexibility. But in mm -hmm. fact, because they're overworking and getting underpaid, they are burning out. They're on the fast track of burnout and they have no more energy to give, which is the worst case scenario. Mm. To, to what degree do you think uh, the, another factor is, um, especially with women who are also mothers uh, and sharing uh, and shouldering uh, a disproportionate amount of, you know, what's what they call mental load, right? Mm -hmm. Of, uh, of either providing childcare, lining it up and keeping the household running, um, even if, you know, let's say um, in a kind of gender normative couple that the, the, the man works full time, the woman works full time, and yet the woman carries more of that mental load of, of, of running the household and doing her job. Um, yeah. How much is that a factor here as well? It's a massive factor because our society isn't built for women to succeed. Most of the careers out there that are the most uh, financially lucrative were built based on the idea that that person had someone else at home holding down the fort, raising the kids, running the home economy, and they could focus all of their attention at work. But that's not the reality anymore. Most families now are dual income families, but it's not dual equal responsibilities at home for a lot, a lot of people. And this is where a lot of the work that I do with my clients is helping them, one, have the confidence to ask for support. And if it's not just in their business, it has to also be at home. I see so often that if there is a man who is a CEO of a very successful company who, let's say, he didn't have a, a home CEO, somebody to run the home life, they would have an assistant. They would have somebody... Um, making their meals and doing their groceries and picking up their laundry and all of these things, they would hire all that out, no questions asked. There would be no shame, no guilt, anything for them to have somebody else to step in and run that part of their life. But women have this conditioning where we believe that in order to be a good wife and a good mother or a good partner, we're supposed to be the ones to sacrifice everything for everyone else which is only contributing to the burnout, especially for women who are trying to not only do all of those things, those obligations, but they're also trying to create a business. It's very, very challenging. 
you know, there's a belief that women should be able to handle all of it. Um, no. And even for, for women who are either, you know, fully employed and, and or running a business that they should be able to also do the same level of, of home stuff as a, as someone who isn't employed or, or runs a business or whatever and making that comparison, it's really seems really prevalent uh, around women and is kind of elevated when a lot of women become mothers and start comparing themselves to, to other mothers. Um, This is such a huge topic. And I have to say um, there's a book out there that came out, I want to say in the last year or two called fair play by Eve Rodsky. Have you heard of this, John? Oh yeah. I've read it. Oh my gosh. This one was so good because I had such a hard time for, for forever trying to explain to other women why you needed to not just wait for help, but specifically ask for it and have real and very hard and vulnerable and honest conversations with your partner and the people in your life um, about what needs to happen. Um, That book is one of my absolute favorites to recommend to women all the time who are going after big things. And I also have to say, this is something we just need to make more normalized is that women can have help. Every woman we see behind the scenes has help. Who's any woman who's super successful. I see this meme all the time. That's like Beyonce has 24 hours a day. So you should be able to do the same thing. Well, no, Beyonce has a chef and a nanny and a driver. Like she has a whole team of people for her 24 hours a day. Her 24 hours a day is probably actually 200 hours a day because she's hired other people and bought their hours to help her do more things behind the scenes, both on the professional side and on the personal side. And I think if women had more of a feeling that this is normal, that if you're going after big things in your career or in your business, that you will need to hire help, then they won't feel so alone in, am I the weird one? Am I a bad person? for outsourcing this part of my life. Um, I wonder if we can get even more concrete with that. So I was actually just talking to one of our uh, mastermind members yesterday. Um, And you know what, while we're at it, let me just plug my program really quick because we're in at the beginning of launch for that program. Um, So, so this is our weekly mastermind. It's called business made human. It's helping therapists build really a purpose driven business, but we teach, the nitty gritty as well, um, kind of foundations of, of business building in a, in a weekly curriculum. We have a weekly meeting, a small group of like-minded peers, and then um, uh, everyone gets access to me with unlimited coaching through my weekly office hours. So um, that program just opened. It launches twice a year. And if you guys are interested, um, privatepracticeworkshop.com, click on Business Made Human to hop on a call with me, uh, or we'll put a link in the description. Um, anyway, thank you for letting me indulge. Uh, I was talking to a, a, a client yesterday and she said, um, you know, she and her husband are both entrepreneurs, right? They both run businesses. <clears throat> and she said, I think I'm at a point where I should hire an assistant. She also has, I don't know, three or four employees that are all psychologists, you know, within the practice mm-hmm. and like a marketing person, but, um, you, you know, her pants are kind of always on fire with, tasks, whether it is, um, managing my emails or book, doing bookkeeping, you know, um, managing my schedule or home stuff too, whether it's the Mm -hmm. laundry or the meal prep or whatever, which most of it falls on her. So she was asking me, um, uh, or or saying, uh, my husband says, you know, I'm not at a point, you know, I'm not at that level, quote unquote, 
uh, to have an assistant, <laughs> um, which may be problematic in a way. Um, but I, how do you help women decide like, or even yeah. if they say, how do, can I afford it, right? Can I afford help if it's yeah. just them or let's say it's a solo practitioner or just a therapist working on their own seeing clients? How, how, when can I afford help? How do I know I can afford it? What do I have them do? Like, how do you start that process with your clients? This is such a great question because I think that's the first instinct a lot of us have is, can I afford this person, right? Like, let's say the biggest thing that would free up bandwidth for you is having that assistant who can manage your inbox, who can manage your schedule, and who can get all of your clients back on your calendar, right? So their their biggest thing is reaching out to clients, rebooking them, keeping that calendar nice and full, which is what all therapists want, right? Like a nice full calendar through the week. So let's say that an hour of your time right now is worth $100 to $200. And you can hire that assistant for $20 to $25 an hour. Now, if that assistant can free up five hours a week of your time from doing all of that admin stuff, they can free up the, you know, responding to emails and responding to voicemails and getting people back on your calendar and sending out the invoices and all of that admin related stuff. It'll cost you $100. That is one paid hour or half a paid hour of your time, maybe even less than that, depending on what your hourly rate is. So when you start shifting that around, then you start asking yourself, well, what do I need to do in order to pay them and make that easy? Well, the answer is if you hire somebody to do those lower level, lower value tasks, they're still important. They've got to get done, but they're not as important as seeing clients or your visibility for your business or doing more marketing or sales activity. If you replace that $25 hour, a dollar an hour work with $100 an hour work, you not only bought back your time, you exponentially increased the value of your time, which is massive. Mm-hmm. So when I was getting started in my own business, um, I kind of had a double whammy because I started my business and then I got pregnant with twins immediately. And so the first thing I had to do was figure out, well, how am I going to get help? Because I have these two babies. How am I going to do that? This was in 2010. And I said, okay, I need to hire a babysitter for 10 hours a week to come so that I can get a little bit of time. If I'm hiring a babysitter, it's $15 an hour, okay, to hire a babysitter to come to my house and play with these babies so I can work. That's $150 for me to get 10 hours. Well, what if each of those 10 hours is worth $150 to $250 for me? That means it's one hour of work for me to get 10 hours of help. That's a game changer when you start thinking of that. So anytime I'm thinking about what level of help or support I need, I'm asking myself, what do I need to do in order to make that happen? It's got to be revenue generating. So it's got to be working with clients, marketing or sales. And if I'm using that time wisely, then that is how you can kind of hack the whole system. This is how you can shortcut things and get the help you need while focusing on the higher level work. So let's talk about that CEO role because I know that's another big part of your your work. Um, And a lot of our clients, um, meaning the therapists that work with us at Private Practice Workshop, they are very entrenched in that kind of business operator role and doing all the things, right? And let's say a group practice owner that's got four clinicians and is doing 
the bookkeeping, even though they could hire it out and uh, managing people's schedules and doing billing for the clinicians and managing social media and all these things. Um, I, I mean, how do you decide to, well, let's say you were to buy back your time and you've got just 10 hours a week to work on your business. What do you think are the critical components of a business for the CEO to, to focus on? Um, if you only have 10 hours, which again, I think is actually just a great exercise in thinking about if I had to look at my calendar and was limited in that amount of time, could I still grow the business as the business owner, CEO, et cetera? So yeah, how do you help people? Yeah, that out? absolutely. Okay. So there's two different parts of this. Um, one is you've got to be ruthless with your calendar <laughs> because if there's one thing that I see most entrepreneurs struggle with, it's that they let their calendar get away from them. And it becomes other people's needs dictating how they're going to run their day. So you have to plan your week. When you show up to your office or to your computer, wherever you're working these days, I don't even know. But when you show up, you have to know what that week is going to bring. And it can't change based on whoever is texting you or leaving you a voicemail or sending you an email. If you are at the whim of everyone else, you aren't running your business. Everyone else is running your business and you are just kind of along for the ride. This is one of the biggest reasons I think people get overwhelmed is because they don't have those boundaries. <laughs> and I know therapists are well-versed in boundaries, but boundaries in your personal life are different than boundaries in your business life. And in your business life, you have to be willing to say, these are the hours I'm available. If you're not booked in these times, too bad. You have to go to the next week. Like you have to have very fierce boundaries around your calendar. In fact, I have a calendar SOP that my whole team follows for how to book me in things for different types of appointments, how that looks, how we run it. It is very, very, very detailed. So I think that's one big thing is CEOs know that their time is their most valuable asset and they need to manage it instead of letting it manage them. So that's the first thing, manage your calendar. The second thing is be aware of what activities you provide the most value in your business with. So this is going to vary by person because we're all different. We all have different strengths. We all show up a little differently in our business. But I think one of the most valuable things, one of the most valuable, um, I guess, pieces of advice that I ever got, my dad's also an entrepreneur, and he told me, my job as a business owner is to fire myself from every job as quickly as I can in my business. Fire yourself as fast as you can. Get out of the admin, get out of the operations, even get out of the delivery. Get to the point where you are truly the business owner and everyone else is making that business happen. They're making the day-to-day -day happen. When you are the CEO, you're not in the day-to-day. -day. You're in the vision. You're in the big picture. You're thinking about what's next. CEOs should be thinking further ahead than what is happening today, this week, this quarter. They should be thinking in the future for where the business is going and directing people in, in that way. Well, for entrepreneurs, that's a little difficult because most of us aren't going out and hiring a CEO. So we have to do that vision work and we have to decide where we provide the most value. Now, some people provide the most value in their work with their clients. Like that truly is the best thing. They don't like sales. They don't feel like they're great marketers. What they do the best is working with clients. They can get results for those clients. They can create transformation for those clients. That is the magic for them. And if that is the case, 
then you want to get rid of everything, fire yourself from everything that is not time with your clients. And in fact, be thinking of how can I provide even more value? How can I give even more to these clients? Is there a next level transformational experience I can create for these clients outside of you know, the, the boundary of a 50 minute session? Is there something else that I can do? If you happen to be someone who you love being out there and talking about um, what you do and getting visibility for your business, well then lean into the marketing side of it. If that is where you provide the most value for the business, then you have to get in front of that and you be the person that leads visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see some people thrive in one or the other or both. It really depends on what works for you. I also see people who really thrive in they've created some sort of process that is very um, easy to duplicate. And what I mean by that is they have actually outlined a step-by-step type of system they take people through. And this, I mean, this varies so dramatically, especially in a field like therapy, but some of them find a process they take people through and now they can train people underneath them or certify people or, you know, allow people to license this intellectual property for them to help them understand how do I take people from this point A to this point B. And that becomes a whole nother place that they can spend their time. So really leaning into your strengths and what you do best, I think is one of the most important things, because if you can do that, and you can focus your time and energy in that playing field and get rid of everything else, get support to do all the things you don't love or that you're not that great at, you will exponentially see results in your business. Yeah, it's interesting because most people hire help too late, right? And they ha- or a lot of them have superhero syndrome, right? No one can do what I do as good as I do it. Whether it's doing therapy or doing the bookkeeping and doing it just right or whatever it is. Um, And so that keeps their business stifled, right, by their own hand. And they, uh, it, it, you know, it also means a real threat to to a lot of business owners is if I'm not there, then the business isn't generating money uh, or cash flow. And that's a a real threat to the business as well. That's a a built in threat if you're, let's say, a a single, a solo practitioner or massage therapist, you just work on your own. Um, But yeah, a lot of people, it's, it's actually already costing them money to keep doing all this stuff on their own, the, the, the $15, $25 an hour tasks. Um, there's, it, it could also be costing you money in the form of you're in session and two potential clients called that have a potential lifetime value to your business of, you know, whether it's uh, $600 or $6,000 um, uh, can be quite substantial in the therapy practice. And so most therapists are already losing business that they don't even know about by trying to do it all you know um there's also just the mental space that um doing all the operations in your business takes up as well so you're not going to be able to work on that vision piece if you're constantly working in the business and not on it at all you could be creating new revenue streams um, and and um, brainstorming about ways to expand your business um but you can't do it if you're just always in the operations um we, uh, if you're here live, we got a handful of people here. If you have questions um, for Rachel, definitely let us know in the comments. Um, so far, we've started talking about kind of how Rachel got here, her, her journey, and um, uh, in being from being a you know a consultant to now uh, really coaching uh, female small business owners mm-hmm. and entrepreneurs to 
a lot of the specific challenges um, that, that female entrepreneurs have um, and what we can do about it. Getting you into the CEO role in your business, which again, very salient for therapists in private practice. Um, yeah, I guess going back to this, this entrepreneurial, um, and, and again, guys, if you have questions, please ask them in the comments. Um, going back to this idea of entre entrepreneurial poverty, what are the main things that you think uh, uh, entrepreneurs should do to um, either get out of poverty or um, uh, stay stay far away from it, as far away from it as possible? Yeah, this is such an important question. And I'm going to say it's not um, where most of us go first. Most of us go to, well, we get out of poverty by working hard and making more money. Actually, it's the opposite. We get out of poverty, <laughs> especially entrepreneurial poverty, not by doing more, but by doing less with more focus and more intention. What I find is, and the research shows this too, when we just work harder, when we add more hours and we just try to grind it out, there is a point at about 35 hours a week where there are diminishing returns. You are just not going to be very productive. Yeah. So it's more important to be laser focused on the things that make the difference and outsource or systematize the things that are, again, those, you know, things you can outsource for $20 an hour <laughs> and free up your bandwidth. So the first thing I usually look at for a lot of my clients is one, how are you making the money you're making? So if you are still in the session by session model, which I know is something a lot of therapists struggle with, then the challenge is you are always struggling with trying to get people to book the next session. It becomes kind of a chase the client where you're always trying yeah. to get them to book the next session and keep them on your calendar. And the truth is when your clients come to you, they don't know how long it's going to take them to have a breakthrough. They don't know how long it's going to take them to transform. They don't know what to expect, right? They don't know what they don't know. But if you've been doing this for any length of time, you can probably make a reasonable guess about what amount of time commitment it will take for them to make progress, you know? And I think one of the biggest I mean, this is one of the biggest disservices a lot of healing and helping entrepreneurs do is they let somebody come in to see them once and then they're just kind of crossing their fingers and hoping that person comes back. That's not how it works, right? Like if I hurt my back and I go to get a massage and I feel good afterwards, but they never told me like, oh, actually you need to come in several times in order to heal this, then I'm just going to be in pain again in two weeks. I didn't actually have the breakthrough. I had a, a small moment of relief, but I didn't actually have a breakthrough. Yeah. So I think that's one shift that we can make is that we need to lead our clients. They've never been through this process. Usually they need some expectations and some guidelines yeah. within reason. Of course, like we don't want to sell them into like a year worth of therapy if that's not reasonable or based on any evidence that you have. But if you work with somebody and they come in to work with you and, the, and you're like, you know what, I think the best course of action is to have this many sessions and this length of time to get a foundation for you and then we'll reevaluate, that changes the game for you, first of all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I actually spend more and more time working with therapists on this um, and even in my group practice, kind of coaching our clinicians to manage expectations with their clients. And I am, uh, I am very... Uh, 
very clear about how we should be showing clients how this process works. Personally, we, we require weekly therapy. People are either in or out, right? Just coming once a month isn't going to do anything. It's not going to do enough for you in terms of results. And there's actually plenty of clinical research to back that up, right? Um, clients actually get best results when they come weekly. Um, and um, it's also, you know, it, it also weeds out potentially unreliable clients or clients that are not going to take it seriously. And if they say, oh, I just want to come once a month, then they might not be a good fit for your practice or might not have enough need right now for, for weekly therapy. Whereas, um, again, the value, both in terms of impact and even the financial value of a client that comes every single week is, um, is substantial. So managing those expectations and as a therapist, it's up to you to tell clients how this works, right? You are, in fact, the expert. Um, yeah, exactly. We do have a question here that might be interesting to tackle together. It says, uh, LiveWise Associates says, any tips for therapists trying to grow their group practice while reducing their clinical time? This is a very common um, challenge. We see yeah. a lot of our clients through it. So the, the group practice owner usually started the group as the only clinician. And, and at that, you know, at some point, you've got maybe one clinician and you don't reduce your caseload much because it's not a ton of other back-end work or mm -hmm. vision work. You're just kind of extending what you do, right? Or maybe the phone kept ringing as a solo practitioner and you didn't want to send that business elsewhere, so you hired someone. But may maybe now you have five clinicians and yet you're still the highest contributor of the business. I see this all the time. Yeah. The group practice owner, and they keep raising their fees, which guess what? Um, people keep buy paying it because you're the best, you're the, the real expert in the business, right? You've positioned yourself above your clinicians. And so it's this kind of um, hamster wheel of trying to reduce your clinical uh, work and really promote your clinicians, right? And also back to like, you know, not getting help is, is costing you something because you're in session when you should be doing, you know, CEO kinds of stuff, you are potentially stifling the growth of the business, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. What do you think, Rachel? Yeah. Transferring that trust um, from you being the person that people are coming for into other people in the business is really challenging. And one thing I would say is this is where having a clear transformational result is really important. And what I mean by that is it's not just having a niche, it's having like a signature thing that you are known for. Like if there is something that you specifically have developed that can make it so that your, any of your patients, any of your clients coming to you, they know that when they are coming to LiveWise Associates, that they are getting this result. There is this process that you are taking them through. They're going to get the same attention and experience from you as they will from any of your associates. A lot of that comes from getting the intellectual property out of your head and into your associates, right? So that's one huge part of it is making sure you have some sort of training or development process to pass that information along so that people aren't just like, well, I only go to them for this one person. Instead, they're like, I go to this practice because all of them are amazing, right? Yeah. The second thing is you have to highlight the other people in your practice. And I think this is something that is, um, when a lot of us start our businesses, it's kind of, you know, it's like the Rachel show. It's the, it's the Dave show. Yeah. Like we're the face of the business. We're the ones that everybody associates with first. So we have to go through this process of building trust with our audience, with our community and all of the other people 
um, who are in your practice. And that means that those people need to be highlighted. They need to be talked about. You need to highlight their experience and expertise. You really need to let them shine in a couple of different ways. One of that is in your marketing, right? But the other part of that is your customer experience. And one way that you can think about this is how are, when people come into your practice, how are you showcasing the other clinicians you have? So are you sending out a newsletter where those clinicians are sharing their thoughts and their point of view? Are you highlighting the transformations that they're facilitating for their clients? Are you sharing their stories so that people can build trust and connect with them? If you're not highlighting those people, then they're going to be like, well, I don't know this person, but I know your story really well, so I want to connect with you. So building that trust, it it has to be intentional. And part of that is um, in your internal marketing, part of that is the regular communication with all of your clients or patients. Part of that is also in the onboarding. So one thing I had um, one of my clients do, and she's actually a nutritionist who specializes in um, different types of challenges, people who have like, uh, I want to say like IBS type of challenges, maybe TMI, but she had a very specific process that she had designed. People had known that they could come to her for these specific challenges and finding, fine tuning their nutrition. And she was having a hard time getting her clients to see these other practitioners she was trying to bring on. So what we did is she focused for a while on just being kind of like the lead person on that particular patient's case. And meanwhile, all of the in-between communication came from the secondary associate. So she would have the the first uh, data session with her client where she's getting all the information from her. And then her associate would follow up with, hey, here's all the results that we got from your blood work and your testing and, you know, everything. Um, Here's the plan of action and here's what you would do. The next review, the lead, you know, CEO did it and then the associate took over. So kind of going back and forth gave them the opportunity to build that trust. And the final thing I have to say is um, make sure you are playing up other people's strengths. If you are not talking about your associate's strengths and what they uniquely have to bring to the practice and to the table, um, then you might be missing out. And honestly, your clients might be missing out. Maybe they have training you don't have or an experience you don't have or a background you don't have. And if they can bring these to the table for the people y'all are working with, it could make a huge difference. So highlight them. Talk about like, hey, Susie is amazing because she has special expertise in XYZ. And that's why we're talking about her this week in our, our client newsletter. This is why we're recommending her work with this, et cetera. Yeah. The, the reality is at some point, you know, as a group practice center, you just have to reduce or eliminate your caseload entirely. There's likely, you know, if you are one of the, the, the biggest contributor to the practice, there's going to be a dip in your revenue, but it's a very temporary dip to see yeah. potentially exponential growth. Cause again, there's stuff that you're not seeing because you're in session all day when you should be growing the business, right. And leading your team, uh, stepping into that, that leadership role and coaching your clinicians and coaching your admin team and, and all those things. So at some point you just have to make that leap. I recommend building up some uh, personal financial reserves so you can do that and just assume that uh, again, if you're pulling yeah. in, uh, a lot of the revenue, you're generating a lot of the revenue yourself of the practice. Um, there will be a, a temporary dip, but it'll be worth it to get to the other side. 
the other thing is, you know, to Rachel's point, from a brand perspective, you want your brand to have a reputation. And I really, uh, I learned this the hard way by building my first practice in San Francisco as kind of a personal brand, right? As John Clark therapy. And this was fine. I was able to achieve success in, in, the, in the terms, in terms of a full, you know, um, solar practice. But if I had wanted to expand that, it would be very difficult to do under that brand. Um, I learned that lesson the hard way. And I also couldn't sell that business, right? Because there was really nothing to sell. Um, I look, luckily, I extracted some of those lessons. And then, um, you know, my first group practice in North Carolina, I built a brand that didn't have anything to do with me. And in fact, I wasn't on the website at all um, and just had my clinicians and was promoting clinicians there through the website and the brand creating a reputation for that brand. And I was kind of, um, uh, as Tim Ferriss says, the ghost in the machine. Um, although again, tangibly in the practice, I was very present and very much, you know, leading the team and creating the culture and all those things and the, the systems and processes and all that stuff. So there, yeah. there's a way to do it, you know, but you, it's kind of like what got you here isn't going to be the thing to get you to the next point. And if you build you if you built your solo practice on your reputation alone, you're gonna have a very hard time using that same reputation to build a a, a sizable you know a considerable group practice where you want all your clinicians to then shine and really for their expertise to to shine through. It's gonna be hard for that to happen. But um, the, yeah, the branding really to, to me has a lot to do with it. Um, Rachel, if you got time for like one more question, we've got another one yeah. which um, I think is interesting. So. Um, Isaiah says, um, and she said she has been in private practice since November 2021. First question is, I'm looking for bookkeeping tools. That question doesn't excite me as much as the, the next ones, but um, <laughs> for bookkeeping, maybe QuickBooks or Zero with an X, um, you know, use one of the popular options and outsource it. If you haven't learned anything today, outsource it. Outsource <laughs> uh, hire it. Hire a bookkeeper. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other piece I think is interesting from kind of a mindset perspective of the CEO and entrepreneur. Uh, she says, I feel lonely at times due to not having someone to celebrate my um, my small to big wins, which I think is very interesting, right? They say it's lonely at the top. And in many cases, you know, um, the CEO, the entrepreneur is always wondering, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough? Is anyone seeing how hard I'm working? <laughs> right. And um, my employees aren't acknowledging that my employees, um, you know, are, are, are there and um, aren't necessarily going to be the ones praising your every move, but you want to feel satisfied in, in, in what you're doing. So Rachel, I think this is an interesting question in terms of that. Yeah. You need a hype aspect. squad. That's the answer. You need a hype squad. And what I mean by that is a couple, a couple layers, right? Like one entrepreneurship can be a lonely path because most people aren't taking it. So chances are a lot of your friends and family and maybe even people who you started your career with, they've never done this. So they have no idea the emotional ups and downs and um, how much risk it feels like you're taking and how much you're pushing out of your comfort zone. They don't get it because they haven't gone through it, right? So you need to find people who have gone through it. And that could be joining a program like John's program. That could be joining the CEO collective. That could be going into your local community and finding other small business owners. Like somewhere you have to find other people. Like Brene Brown says, you have to find people who are in the arena, because if they're not in the arena, they're not going to understand what it's taking for you to be there. And when you have those people, um, you have to not only just connect with them for the sake of having a network, 
but connect with them so that you can hype each other up. Like some of my favorite people who started as business connections, they started as um, amazing entrepreneurs that I just met in the course of networking and whatever. They have become my hype squad. Like there is a text message thread going on all the time. Like, oh my gosh, I just sent this huge proposal and it got accepted. I'm terrified. I just pitched myself for this thing. And they are the ones who are like, you're awesome. You're going to get it. You're so great. And we need that, right? We need that. And you need to find those outside people who believe in your vision as much as you do. And also they aren't going to let you get away with playing small. (laughs) They're going to say, whenever times get tough and you're like, oh, I just want to throw in the towel. I hate this. My husband doesn't get it. No one understands what I'm trying to do. They're going to be like, "Uh uh-uh. You have not come this far to only come this far. You have to keep going. So you need a hype squad. Go out and find them. Join a community. Start connecting with people. They are out there. Those are the people that will carry you through the tough times. Yeah, that's that's really well said. Um, yeah, especially now, you know, there's so much has changed in the world the last couple of years. Um, in Isaiah's case, uh, you know, she started her practice kind of in the thick of um, uh, of COVID and everything. And um, a, a lot of teams are remote right now. I mean, a lot of CEO, myself included, doing mostly remote work. So even though you have team members, it's it's virtual and stuff. And um, it is it is it can be quite lonely, and you need to surround yourself with with like minded peers and people who get it. And ideally, a business coach. Um, uh, I think that's great advice. Um, Rachel, I wish we had time for, for more questions because um, certainly there's there's a lot to cover. But um, uh, I want to thank you for being here. It's been really neat to get to know you and hear uh, kind of your take on entrepreneurship and um, especially the unique um, uh, aspects for women. I think, again, very salient for an audience of therapists. Um, just to wrap things up, um, uh, again, announcement for you guys, um, our, our weekly mastermind business made human is open. Now, if you're interested, head to privatepracticeworkshop.com, click on business made human to apply and the doors will close in just a couple of weeks. Uh, Rachel, maybe you can wrap things up with, um, letting people know exactly how they can get in touch with you and then any program that might interest them. I, I would love to, um, have them hear about that as well. Yeah, your best way to continue hearing from me is to head over to Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform you love and check out my show, Promote Yourself to CEO, where we talk about how to scale a service-based business without the hustle and burnout. And if you want to connect with me personally, the most active platform for me is Instagram. And you can find me at rachel.cook. I would love for you to pop over there, DM me, let me know your insights, your ahas, your takeaways, your questions. I am checking over there all the time and would love to hear your big takeaways from our conversation today. Awesome. There you have it, folks. Thanks for um, for being here again. If you're here on YouTube, you came live. Thanks for being here, answering questions. If you missed this, um, definitely keep an eye out for our, our upcoming live interviews, which guess what? We have another one in five minutes. So you're in luck if you're here. You want to keep rocking and rolling. We're going to be talking about Google My Business here in five minutes. So that's nice. um, oddly a topic near and dear to my heart because I think it's uh, an overlooked platform for therapists. But we'll be talking about that with Kelly Fitzgerald in five minutes. Otherwise, if you're listening to the podcast, um, uh, make sure to subscribe, leave a review if you're feeling generous. And again, um, reach out if you're interested in, uh, in joining Business Made Human. So 
um, there you have it. Thanks again for being here, Rachel, and um, uh, keep in touch. Thank you so very much. Take care. Thanks. Cheers.